Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Women and the Sea, a public symposium which took place at the National Maritime Museum of Ireland on the 25th and 26th of September 2015. The symposium was supported by UCD Earth Institute, UCD Humanities Institute, the National Maritime Museum of Ireland, Dunleary Rathdown County Council, and the Atlantic Archipelago's Research Consortium. The symposium was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features a recording of Panel 4, Women at Sea. The panel featured four speakers, Captain Sinead Rean from the Irish Institute of Master Mariners, whose presentation was entitled Breaking the Mould. Lieutenant Commander Eric O'Leary spoke about the Irish Naval Service. David Snook from the Maritime Institute spoke about Women in the British Merchant Marine, Central Records and the CR10 card photos. And Karen Dubsky from Coastwatch gave a presentation entitled Coastwatch, a citizen science initiative for the sea and us. The panel was chaired by Richard McCormack from the National Maritime Museum of Ireland. Slides and images referenced by the speakers are available to view on the Women and the Sea page in the podcast section of the UCD Humanities Institute's website. And I'll just give a brief introduction to Sinead before we start. According to Sinead, it was time she spent on the sail training vessel Asgard II that gave her the real taste for the sea, and she would have been quite and had a lot in common with many other people as well. She tried to join the Irish Naval Service, but at that time they didn't admit women into it. So that was their loss, but she joined the Merchant Marine and she became the first female to qualify as a deck officer in the Merchant Marine in Ireland, which is quite an achievement. She sailed with some really top companies, such as Esso, BP, Bergenson and P&O Cruises, where eventually she became a lecturer in the National Maritime College of Ireland in Ringeskiddy. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, I'd just like to say thank you to the organiser for inviting me here today. I am amazed at the um, calibre and intimidated indeed by the calibre of presentations. Uh, I'm completely enthused by the diversity um, of the marine information that's coming through and it's highlighted to me the importance that we need to document our maritime history. My presentation today, titled Breaking the Mould, I'm going to stand out front because I'm a bit short uh, behind the podium. My name is Sinead Reen. Reen, translated from Irish, means difficult, stubborn, and stiff-necked, which a lot of the crew that I've sailed with might agree with. As Richard's mentioned, I'm a master mariner. I have the proud distinction of being the first Irish female to get an Irish captain's license. What I'm going to speak to you about today is just to highlight, uh, to, to, to explain what the Merchant Navy is about, to explain my personal lows and the highs with a career at sea, and to see is there a future, is there a future for women at sea. So as Richard's already um, introduced me, I spent about 12 years working in the Merchant Navy, mainly on tankers, some of the largest vessels in the world. Uh, We're talking maybe 1,000 foot long, maybe 150 foot wide. We'd have about 70 foot under the water, kind of like icebergs. I also spent time working around the Mediterranean coast and the UK and Irish coast in smaller tankers. 
But after a series, a number of times of running out of food on the VLCCs, very large crew carriers, I said, that's it, I'm off to cruise ships. I spent a year on cruise ships, and then I said, right, that's it, I'm going back to tankers. <laughs> um, I came ashore then, and I worked for Cork Harbour Radio, working their VTS, that's, you know, organising the pilots and things like that. And in between all of that, uh, for the last 14 years, in between going to sea, having a family, I've been working for the Maritime College uh, in Ringeskiddy, part of Cork Institute of Technology. A uh, variety of subjects, meteorology, sea survival. Yes, I was in the survival pool only last week and did feel seasick myself. And, <laughs> um, and doing some consultancy work, heading out for uh, off Cadiz on a ship, um, assisting them with their navigation aids. That's my background. That's where I've come from. So what do I mean by breaking the mould? Did I break the mould? What mould was to be broken? I headed to sea in the 90s. Heading to sea in the 90s was unusual in itself. But being female and heading to sea in the 90s, I can tell you, was very unusual. The reason I know this is that my class in college was the very first class to ever have any females. In fact, in my, during my interview to attend the course, they asked me, was there a good-looking man at the careers fair? Because they had never had so many women apply. They had five. <laughs> you know. Um, and as already mentioned, I did a try to apply to the Irish Navy. Unfortunately, they weren't recruiting women at the time. So that, that area, you know, that didn't happen. Uh, so blind to the sea, I had no idea about the industry at sea. I grew up in Shannon in County Clare, basically under the runway. We used to play basketball under the control tower. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a chef, and specifically a pastry chef. But I was 16 doing the Leaving Cert. You had to be 17 to go to college. So I spent a year working in, in industry. I had a fantastic sponsorship from a beautiful boutique hotel. And during that year, I headed off on the Asgard more than once. And listening to Captain Rowan McAllister talking about trips you know, at sea, he's talked about tankers. And I was there, what? I, I, I just had no idea. I was there, like ferries, ships. I know that England to Ireland, you know, we, we bring stuff across. I know we're an island. But it was like, I had no idea that there was an entire industry out there that we could access. And it was like, it really was like somebody just switched on a light and all of a sudden the whole world was open. You know, we could do these jobs. I didn't realize that we could. I thought that was just foreign people from foreign countries. You know, and as already Fiona Grant brought up this photograph, it's like we know Ireland, but how much of it is actually underwater and how big Ireland actually is. So just to give you, there can be often confusion between the Merchant Navy and the Defence Forces and the Naval Service. So just to give you an outline of what the Merchant Navy means. So some of you will have had breakfast this morning. The grain has to come from somewhere. It could be from Australia, it could be from, from the States shipped across but then the plastic bag for the cornflakes, we need petrochemicals from somewhere for that. We need ink to print Kellogg's cornflakes. And then all has to be shipped across on the ferry over here to Ireland. Not only that, but we need a bowl and a spoon. You know, this is where shipping comes into play. This stuff has to come. Made in China is on the bottom of the bowl. It didn't come by aircraft. We've got our close shipping. And we had mention of um, renewable energy sources. We've got our windmills. Parts for the windmills are shipped in and shipped... Uh, put into place outside um, to produce the energy. We've got infant formula. Ireland is one of the second largest producers of infant formula for China. We don't, we don't send that out in the aircraft. That has to be shipped 
the fuel, the fuel crisis of the 70s, that could happen again. All our fuel, our home heating fuel, the coal for our fires. My husband worked on ships as well. He was captain at sea and he's brought coal from um, Australia uh, to Money Point. Everything that we wear, our clothes, our shoes, our building products, we are an island and sometimes we do forget that. But it's the merchant navy, you can't see us, we're not on the roads. If we go on strike, we can't go and park on the motorway. You know, we actually aren't allowed to go on strike. This is an image of the international shipping lanes, the world wide web. The shipping lanes are like the web and the fabric of industry in every country. The stuff has to come from China or Japan or Australia. Unfortunately, our download speed is about uh, 20 miles an hour. You know, it could be 35 days to get from the Persian Gulf to, uh, to America, you know, for the oil. So life at sea, what did I do? What was in my day? My typical working day, I would be navigator, up on the bridge, altering course for ships, keeping a lookout. You're also the company representative when you're up there. We're in charge of communications. We communicate with the, the, the shore or we listen out for any distresses that we might hear when we're at sea. We keep an eye on the weather, right? This can affect the stability of the vessel and blow up very, very quickly. We are in charge of the loading and the discharge of the cargo. I didn't realize this when I first went off from the ship. I thought we'd have a cargo engineer, but no, it's the deck officers. We tweak the pumps, we, we speed them up, we slow them down, we suck the oil out, we push it out, we take it in, whatever needs to be done. The environmental protection, I was talking earlier to somebody talking about the uh, mating season for the northern right whales heading up to Canada. They're like the crows on the road in the early morning. They don't get out of the way. We have a turning circle of one and a half kilometers and you're seeing them there. You're looking out the binoculars and they're, not, they're busy courting, you know, so you have to try and drive around them. Security officer, this is one of the students in my class yesterday morning. We, are, we have piracy threats. There's razor wire around the ships. Not every ship will have uh, security armed forces on board. Sometimes it's only during the load of passage and sometimes it's never at all. This, by the way, he's not holding a gun. It's a wooden one. Okay, they give us wooden guns to play with. It's to make us look like we're actually armed. We're our own fire department. Don't try putting the bags on or over your heads at home. These guys have got BA sets. This is training. We do training regularly. And uh, this is a picture of one of the ladies in the audience here today who just got off a flight from Glasgow. We're involved in the maintenance of the ship. This is Anna Louise Barron. And above all, we're also comrades. Whatever goes on in somebody's life on board the ship or at home, we're, we're all you've got. We work together. You know, we have to socialize in some way. But the thing is, this is what you do whether you're male or female. This is where the equality lies. It's in the rank, it's in your job. You only get promoted to that rank with a bit, with a, depending on your abilities. And yes, I have been asked because I've been in uniform, would you please put sun cream on my back? You know, one of the other job descriptions. So the threats for us in the Merchant Navy. Yes, piracy is big. As I said, we don't always have armed guards. Again, these are photographs that I got from a student yesterday morning. This happened on one of the sister ships. They had uh, an armed guards on board, but they were also boarded by pirates. You can see some of the pock marks. It looks like somebody just threw a ball of soot up at the bridge, but then you can see the devastation 
and how the, the, they've been smashed, that's toughened glass, it's been smashed in. But those of us that don't have riding squads, what we have is um, dummies. We get boiler suits, we stuff them up, and in this example, propped up with mops. Or on this other one, we tie them to the railings. The reason for this is to make it look like we have more crew on board and we're more of a threat. The other thing as well is that refugee crisis. It is a crisis in the Mediterranean, but it's not new. 30 to 40 years ago, we had the Vietnamese boat people. It's still going on in southeastern Asia. We're just not hearing about it. The Australians are dealing with that. 2001, Captain Arnie Rinnan uh, on the Tampa, he was told to get out of Australian waters, and he refused. This other vessel here, the Caprice, she, she rescued 510 people. We're not equipped to deal with this. Over in accordance with the uh, International Chamber of Shipping, their statistics since early 2014, over 1,000 merchant vessels have aided in the recovery of people in the Mediterranean. But you don't hear about us. So my own personal trials. Well, it was difficult to get a job at sea. We're all used to that sign. But being female, they just didn't want us. My first job interview, they took half my class and they said, we're sorry, we're going on results, so we're not going to offer you a position. And I said, well, I'm number one in the class. And they said, well, we're still not going to offer you a position. So that was it. But then this is where being female worked to my advantage because the large multinational company needed to show that they will take on the minority. So positive discrimination, I got one of the best jobs. I went away with Esso. Being away from home, as I say, distance makes the heart grow fonder, and it does help with your family ties. One of the other disadvantages, though, was that it wasn't just my first job interview that this continued. It was even when I got my master's, my ship's license, ship captain's license. I still found it hard to get a job at sea, and to the point where eventually I ended up working in a bar. It takes about 10 years to get your master's license, and I worked in a bar for three months. The trials at sea, yes, injuries, dislocated wrists, dislocated shoulders, ear injuries due to helicopter operation, communications were difficult. One of the most expensive phone calls I had was over $300. It was $14 a minute to talk to my husband, and we had a silent row. Uh, I had a fantastic experience with uh, Midwest Radio. I was in the Mediterranean feeling extremely lonely. Went up in the bridge and there was real diddly diddly music playing. They had an hour-long slot on, uh, on an international radio station. I sent them a letter and said, can you please play me the boat, Lonesome Boatman? What they did was they actually phoned the ship and let me talk to my mom on a radio link call. Cultural issues, there's a problem with gender. Certain countries will not take an order from women and they refuse to actually stop loading the ship. They, would, they wouldn't, we load to 98% capacity, capacity and they wouldn't stop loading the oil. Medical issues, I'd lump in my breast, had to wait for a couple of weeks to get ashore. I uh, got to the hospital, when I got back to the ship, everyone was given all the oil okay, I had to go to St. Thomas's oncology department and I was made to work extra because I'd had time off. The mate came in drunk one night and told me he was going to break me, physically break me. He didn't want me to stay at sea. But being forewarned is forearmed and I survived. I've had to spend watches standing beside the general alarm because I've been threatened my own safety. I've had to spend three hours hiding down the engine room waiting for customs to get off the ship. Right, the advantages, can I have one more minute, Richard? Right, I'll fly through these. 
equality in wages, transparency, it just goes by rank. The skill sets that we develop at such a young age. 21 in charge of a cargo worth $40 million. 4,000 people asleep below you. You're only 21. The experiences, the cultures, the travel, the smells of land. To say you can smell land in Indonesia, the sweet, the gorgeous smells, the camaraderie, the friendship, the, uh, the great times ashore, the fantastic scenery, my two favorite places, Santorini and Bora Bora. Is there a future at sea? Absolutely. There's lots of us. Georgina Alderman, uh, Commissioner of Irish Lights, um, working with the Commissioner of Irish Lights, Deirdre Lane, who's also chairman of the Nautical Institute. We've got Melissa Lynch, Kim Mulcahy, working with the National Maritime College. And then we have our future. We are hoping to have five graduates this year, all of whom have got a fantastic future ahead of them. Is there a future? Yes, I do believe there is. Have I broken the mould? I'd like to think I've helped pave their way. Thank you very much. Congratulations on that, Sinead. That was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Our next speaker is Lieutenant Commander Erica O'Leary. And Erica joined the Irish Naval Service as a cadet and was commissioned an officer in 1999. She's a very impressive seagoing career in the Naval Service. She has served as a gunnery officer, and in fact there's a gun outside the door we need to talk to her about. Uh, she has been a navigation officer and an executive officer on LE IFA. She has been an executive officer on LE Ethna, and eventually she rose to be officer commanding LE IFA in 2012, so she has commanded a ship. She was called to the Irish Bar as a barrister in 2009 and has also served in quite a number of shore-based staff appointments, too numerous to mention, but she's dealt with issues such as planning and policy, and planning and policy, I'm sure, in the Naval Service, like any other occupation, is exceptionally important. And it demands concentration and it demands effort and ability. She also lectures in the Naval College in her part-time on maritime and military law, which is hardly surprising. Her current role is in the personnel section of the Naval Service, and she's also the Gender Advisor to Naval Command. She's currently studying for LLM in Human Rights and Public Policy in University College Cork. And I would like you to give a warm welcome to Lieutenant Commander Eric O'Leary, who will speak about the Irish Naval Service. I'm going to set a timer there now because <laughs> I'm not sure how long this will take and I know we're under time constraints. So, um, Okay, just to start off, I'd like to thank the organisers, in particular um, John Brannigan and our chair Richard McCormack for the kind invita invitation to speak at the symposium today. Um, women play an important role in many sectors where traditionally um, one wouldn't expect to see them, I suppose. Um, being a woman in the naval service, uh, I believe, certainly fits into this category. Um, the first thing people generally ask when they hear that I'm a naval officer is, was that something that you always wanted to do? The honest answer is no, um, absolutely not. I wanted to be a, a dentist, then an equine scientist. Um, I eventually settled on law, which is what I applied for my CAO. Um, I can honestly say that choosing a career at sea was something that came as much as a surprise to me as it did to, to everybody else, but it was something I wouldn't change for the world. 
I grew up in a rural coastal area, um, the eldest of four girls. Uh, the women in my family were, have always been strong-willed with ambition and drive. And I thank my grandmother, who served as a um, head psychiatrist in the Central Mental in Dublin in, du Dublin in Dundrum, and my mother for that. There were no barriers to women where they were concerned, and I was encouraged to do whatever I wanted to do career-wise. Um, the, the world was my oyster, was what they continually would repeat to me. Um, I joined the Navy. Um, the Naval Service began enlisting females in 1995. Um, this year we celebrate 20 years of women in the Navy, so that's, that's a, a, an important um, milestone for us. I joined the Navy two years later in 1997 as a cadet. I was the only girl who was commissioned with my class, and for me it was a big deal. It was no big deal, um, but I was always aware that I was in the minority. Much of the naval way of on-the-job training involves mentoring, and as such, most of this, most of this would have come from male superiors, um, as women hadn't reached those ranks yet. I've had some amazing mentors, and have been very fortunate to have worked under some of the finest ship drivers um, and commanding officers. Um, as Richard mentioned, I've worked as gunnery officer, navigation officer, executive officer in two different ships. Um, however, I always aspired to reach what is every operations branch officer's goal, which was to become, to have command of my own ship. And this became a reality for me in 2012 when I stepped on board the LEFA. It was brought a proud and a humbling moment, I must say. Um, to give you an idea, the number of crew on board this type of ship um, would be 45 men and women. Knowing that you're accountable for the welfare and output of so many highly trained and skilled individuals brings with it a huge sense of responsibility. During my time, um, we never had more than six women of all ranks serving on board my ship. And regardless of their gender, every man and woman has a role to fill, no more than in the Merchant Navy. Um, they are service persons first and foremost. Two women had captained similar ships prior to me, and um, during my tenure I was glad of their advice and also their support. We were a very small group as female naval officers, and we rely on this network for support, advice, and sometimes reassurance. Um, and that's how it should be. I never had a difficulty commanding troops, be they male or female, and I firmly believe that if you know your job, you're fair, and communicate well, then the rest should follow. That has been my experience. Um, I was at a women's network dinner some months ago, and one of the main criticisms people had um, of, the main, of one of the, the speakers who was a highly successful female CEO was that she spoke of how well things had gone for her but she never mentioned the downsides. Um, nobody has a 100% positive experience um, throughout their career um, with no hurdles that they had to overcome. Um, all, all in all, my time as ship's captain was both rewarding and fulfilling and it taught me a lot about both myself as a decision maker and manager. There were many highs, but also some lows during my time as officer commanding on the IFA. I lost a crew member in tragic circumstances. It didn't involve the naval service. However, it hit both myself and my crew very hard. But what amazed me was the strength and the crew drew from one another and that I drew from them as a result. They had a huge resolve to move forward and to continue with what was our job. The sense of pride that I felt from my crew at the time was overwhelming. I was very humbled. Then, on the contrary, one of the highlights for me was the rescue of an elderly Norwegian couple whose yacht had been severely damaged by storms about 100 and 180 miles southwest of Ireland. We took the couple on board, both of whom, they were very traumatised, as you can imagine, and were extremely glad to see us. We towed their yacht back to Cork in fairly difficult conditions. Their sense of relief and gratitude having been rescued was palpable. It was a stark reminder for me 
that the sea is a dangerous and sometimes unpredictable place for even the most seasoned of seafarers. Just check time. Yeah, we're okay. So that leads me on then to what the Naval Service is currently doing. You've probably all seen quite a bit about us in the news of late. Um, our current humanitarian role in the Mediterranean is one that's very new to us. Um, our third ship to be deployed to assist in the Mediterranean um, is the Samuel Beckett, who left for the Med on Thursday. She sailed with 59 crew on board, uh, of which the navigation officer is a female lieutenant, and there are two other female crew on board. The Samuel Beckett replaces the Ellie Neve, who's been deployed in the area for the last three months. Um, the Naval Service role in the Med is in search and rescue, in cooperation with the Italian Navy and the Italian Coast Guard. To put the job that we are carrying out there in perspective, the Ellie Neve was directly involved in saving 3,981 lives in her time on scene. This is what one ship has achieved. The Naval Service has been involved in saving over 7,000 lives in the Mediterranean to date. So you can see there, if you just look at the slide, you can, it gives you an idea of where we're actually operating out of. So um, this whole area here between Libya and Sicily is pretty much the area, or what we call our area of operation. This here is just giving you an idea. Zuara Harbour seems to be the, the main harbour that all the, um, the vessels are being deployed from. In majority, we're dealing with barges and inflatable ribs, um, with, as I said, 30% of the, the migration flow coming from this particular harbour. Again, just to give you an idea, again, you may have seen these statistics already in the, in the news, but um, if you look there at the red, that depicts 2015, and there were in, uh, an incident in April there, which really spurred um, off the humanitarian search and rescue um, operation from an EU perspective, and in particular from an Irish perspective, happened in April when there was 800 um, persons drowned. If you look there, you'll see those circles depict where the majority of the, um, of the incidents with the circles representing the number of migrants dead and missing in each, each incident. And the purple circle there, it um, represents the incident on, in April where more than 800 people were drowned. So you can see that it's all mainly focused in the one area off the coast of Libya. Um, Mara Securo is the name that is given to the humanitarian effort that we're involved with at the moment. And on the March 12th, they deployed the task group off the Libyan coast, one which we are now involved. Search and rescue region. This is the region that was set up. So again, you can see that it's just off the coast of Libya. There's different sectors, and depending on where the, the, the search and rescue um, is reported, um, each task is given to each different um, asset in the area. We're just one of, of many assets that are down operating off the coast of Libya um, with the Italian Navy coordinating. So just to give you a little bit of a background on the, the legal basis of how, how Italy is operating, um, what happens first is the migrants, they contact IMRCC and use key phrases. So they're given a, a script to read from over the VHF. Um, the boats, boats are usually in the Libyan SAR zone, but they can't, they, they just don't respond. So the next point of contact would be Malta. And again, they're unable to react. So the, it is the, um, the IMRCC in Rome, which assume responsibility for the search and rescue. From Ireland's perspective and our legal basis, we are there under the Defence Act, uh, Section 348, which allows for Ireland and the Irish Navy to be tasked with humanitarian missions. Um, there's a note there and from both Ireland and Italy, which um, allows us to, to work in cooperation with one another. Um, and this is all coordinated and, and with cooperation with the Italian Coast Guard. Once the search and rescue is declared, we deal directly with the R I MRCC in Rome. 
and the rescued persons are brought to a, sa a safety or a place of safety which is designated by um, IMRCC. There's several ports around um, Italy where we send, majority being in, to Sicily. So to give you an idea, again, the previous slide, but um, that was the, the previous slide showed approximately 100 migrants in one of the inflatable um, craft. And this particular one shows one of the barges, which has between 200 to 350 migrants. You can see the scale and the crush of people that they're cramming into these boats um, before the, they're sent off northwards towards um, the coast of Italy. There are, at the moment, there are two female officers serving on board the Neve. Um, with the symposium in mind, I ask them for some information on their experience to date in the Med. Um, even in the midst of their incredibly busy schedules, they were more than willing to share their experiences with me. Um, as I said, once the ship is tasked with a search and rescue, they proceed to the last known position of the vessel, and on sighting, the ship moves into a higher state of readiness to prepare for the rescue. Everybody on board is involved. The ribs are launched, and the rescuees are taken on board. They are medically assessed, given food and water, and are made as comfortable as possible for the transit to a port of safety. Many are dehydrated, exhausted, and suffering from exposure. The navigation officer on board is Lieutenant Aoife Campbell. She has overall responsibility for the safe navigation of the ship during all phases of the search and rescue, from plotting and sighting the vessel to embarking the rescuees and the passage of the ship safely to the port assigned by Italian authorities. She's also the logistics officer on board, so she's responsible for liaising with shore agents for resupplying the ship once the ship docks in port. In her own words, as I have the con on the ship, especially for embarkation stations, it is essential there is a perfectly as possible there is a lot to think of, clutching in and out the engines, our range from the vessel of interest, a lee, an unexpected factor but important one is shade from the sun. As personnel on deck are wearing personal protective equipment, which can be restrictive, it's, ex it's exceptionally physically tough, especially in the height of the sun. A shade makes a massive difference. It can be hard at midday when the sun is at its highest trying to offer some relief. The operation is of a tempo I've never experienced on board. People are walking taller especially after the capsize, I think people saw how directly they were literally saving lives. It surprised everyone how they had to, to switch, how, sorry, how a switch went off as soon as the vessel capsized and the crew had to react. The engineering officer on board is also a woman, Lieutenant Elaine Maloney. She's a very experienced officer with over 15 years in the Navy. She explained how everyone has their day-to-day -day job on board as well as new roles that stem from the SAR operations. She's responsible for the maintenance of all engineering matters on board from the engines to the aircon. Once the SAR operation commences, however, she's out on deck dealing with the women and children in particular. In her words, it's been a challenging eight weeks to date, but also rewarding. Nearly every operation has made us face a new challenge. There was a baby born on board, finding 14 deceased persons on board one vessel, a trawler capsized, engine failures. But the one thing that has kept me going out here is the crew. I have never sailed with a better, more close-knit crew than we have right now. Everyone is there for one another, and the camaraderie is something that I have never even come in close to experiencing before. Even though we have had some pretty harrowing experiences, we've all come out stronger the other end simply because of how close the crew is and how everybody is looking out for each other, from the ordinary seaman to the executive officer. There is no doubt that our role in the Med is an important one. I'm particularly proud of our women who are operating not only at sea in the Mediterranean, but also day to day in our ships on Irish waters and beyond protecting Ireland's interests as well as human lives at and from the sea. And so to conclude, in the spirit of, uh, of the theme of today's symposium, I've compiled a short photo clip giving an insight into the day-to-day -day lives and roles of Ireland's Navy women. If you're with me, women, let me hear you say.
Thank you very much, Erica. That was very good. Now, we're going to step back in time a little bit, and our next speaker will be David Snook. Now, David Snook is a member of the Maritime Institute, which owns this museum, but he's also a formidable researcher, and for a number of years now, he's been running a website which is called www.irishmariners.ie, and it's an online database of about 23,000 Irish seamen and some women who you can see at the back of the museum here who were in the Merchant Navy, uh, particularly around towards the end of World War I when they were desperate to get people to go to the front and they took them in and took their photographs to make sure they weren't trying to dodge the draft, as I say, at that time. Now, David's website has become what I would call the go-to website for those of us who are maritime enthusiasts or maritime genealogists, and especially for the World War I period. He himself, he hails from Bristol. I haven't found out how or why he came to Ireland, but we're very glad to have him here. He holds an MLS in history from University College Dublin. He has researched these CR10 cards for, I have no idea how long, but they are a fantastic resource. And he got a number, I think he said 40, maybe 60 cards uh, of women who went to sea, which rather surprised, he said, the Southampton Archive Services, who held these and have held them for many, many years. And they gave us permission to use some of them on our website, and they always and they gave us permission to obviously to display them here in the museum, and we're very grateful for that. Now, David has exhibited in ports all around Ireland, possibly in the UK as well, and certainly up in the north. Would you give a loud round of applause for David, who's going to talk about women in the British Merchant Marine? David Smith. Thanks very much for coming along to listen to me. Let me start by... Uh, World War One, British government introduced male conscription for the UK, apart from Ireland, as you all know, in January 1916. But men in crucial industries like uh, coal miners and merchant seamen were exempt. Uh, and that was fine for another 18 months or so until the spring and summer of 1918 with the German attacks in, on the Western Front and there was a manpower crisis. And the government responded by extending the age limits for conscription. Uh, couldn't persuade Ireland to join. Uh, they also decided that they weren't sure what was happening with merchant seamen. Uh, they thought that mer some merchant seamen may be registering as merchant seamen, but not going to sea and avoiding conscription. So in September 1918, the Board of Trade introduced an identity book, including the passport style photograph for all merchant seamen, together with a matching central record card, the CR10 card. And the system operated for three years until December 1921. And the surviving cards, 300,000 of them, are held now in Southampton Civic Archives, and they cover a multinational workforce. I think there were 6,000 Chinese in there. The system was designed to, to, as men only uh, because of the conscription issue. Um, our family group went through the Southampton records, 2006, 2008. 
I think it's 150 boxes with 2,000 records in each box. And we extracted the details of all the Irish ones we could find, Irish men, 23,000 Irish men and two Irish women. Uh, and the two Irish women are on the board over there. Unfortunately, one hasn't got a photograph, uh, one from Dumb Cormac. Uh, so we put the results onto a searchable online database. We did find the occasional woman, and the archivist in Southampton is very keen to find women that, that turn up. And, we, and in the later stages of the project, we spent about a thousand hours there all together with the family group. In the later stages, we, we tended to collect the women we found. Um, when I knew about this symposium, I went back and I searched for more, and I found altogether 66 records, 44 appear in this exhibition. The majority of them are English, uh, there's about perhaps half a dozen Scots, two Irish, one from Nova Scotia, and I think two from the States. So it's, it's mostly English, uh, couldn't find any more. Um, I reckon the number of, of jobs for women at the time, this is 1918, the end of the war, was about 1,300. There are 1,300 positions, but they, because of, there was a lot of turnover of people, it could well have been a lot more people involved. Certainly found that with the seamen. Uh, now, next slide shows what identity card looks like. I'm sorry it's a man. The reason I'm putting it up there is this man is from Rush. His, the reason I put it up there, if you look at his nationality, you see a big sludge after nationality up on the left-hand side, and then it's Irish. On his central record card, which was made, produced in December 1918, it's down as British. I don't think it was an issue in December 1918, but by 1920, 1921 it was, which is why he's changed his nationality to, to Irish. Uh, just shows part, I've, there are very few of these books about, and you tend to uh, get what information you can out of them when you find them. Just to look back at how women got to sea, from 1860 to 1914, first of all, the steamships replaced sailing vessels. Ship construction went from wood to iron to steel, and the ships became bigger, faster, safer, we hope, and more efficient. And Great Britain developed the world's preeminent merchant shipping fleet to meet the growing demand for cargoes and passengers. And as you know here, emigration was a, was a, was a big factor, especially from ports like Liverpool. Liverpool to the States, Canada, Australia, South Africa. Women were employed as stewardesses to look after female passengers and children. On the North Atlantic routes, a major liner like the Titanic, for example, would employ a crew of about 900 males and 22 stewardesses. There were also cross-channel steamers for the Irish Sea and the North Sea, complete with the rail, link, rail links, plus their regular serve, steamer services come, coming from the major coastal towns like, say, it would be Dundee, Aberdeen, uh, Tyneside, Edinburgh, 
Grimsby coming down with service to London on the East Coast. And there will be smaller crews, but there will also be stewardesses on, on, on those ships, two, three, or four stewardesses. And across the Irish Sea, of course, with the Leinster, ships like that, there will be three, four stewardesses with them. At the 1911 Seaman Census, there were about 165 men and 1,300 women employed in the merchant shipping fleet. That gives you, not, you know, many more men, and the women really restricted to jobs like stewardesses or possibly some clerical jobs, or typist. I think there was a typist on the Lusitania who was lost. Uh, and immediately after the war, because the, the registration system started, that the identity card system is started right at the end of the war, uh, immediately after the war, there was a shipping boom uh, when all the armies from France were taken home to the States, to Australia, and there was a boom until the autumn of 1920, and the end of the boom is generally reckoned to be the October 1920 strike in the UK. In, by 1921, unemployment rates have gone up. 20% and Siemens wages are reduced. And really, for the next 20 years, there is a depression in the shipping industry. And the North Atlantic passenger trade was adversely affected by the US and Canadian authorities. They restricted immigration after 1921. That gives a bit of the background. Now, looking at the cards, the questions I get asked are, why are there no voyages shown on an individual's record card? It's a sign usually that the individual was on home trade, working, going from, say, a place like Grimsby down to, say, Hamburg, in a day and then back again. So it's, it's home trade would be around the British Isles, coastal trade, the Irish Sea, or to anywhere on the European shore between Hamburg in the north to Brest in the south. So it's a limited area that you're going to make a lot of trips over a short period. And if you put every voyage in, you'd, you'd swamp the form. If, if, once you get outside that, if you're on foreign voyages across the North Atlantic, for example, or into the Baltic, then the, there would be a voyage recorded. Next, are the identity numbers significant? Yes. Each person up there has got an identity number, six digits, usually starting with an eight. Um, if it's 801, and there's one example up there, it means they're from Glasgow. Great picture of the woman from Glasgow. If it's 816, they're from some, all I've got so far is they're some, from somewhere on Tyne, Tyneside. You can tell from the uh, places they're, they're, they're born. Uh, North Shields, South Shields, Newcastle, Gateshead, those sort of places. And you can also see that the actual photograph on those Tyneside ports has been taken in the same spot by the, probably the same photographer or team of photographers. And the other one there, there are largest numbers, Grimsby, 817. Once again, the people are bored in and around Grimsby. There are a couple of places on the, on the south coast, but I haven't identified yet where they're from. It's very much a work in progress. I, I really only started to find women once I knew this, um, this uh, symposium was going ahead. I'm usually more interested in uh, coastal towns in Ireland. 
just talk about the, the CR10 cards for a minute. The strengths and the weaknesses. Well, first of all, the strength is the number of cards. And for Ireland, 23,000 cards. It means on a place like Arklow, for example, I think 600 for Arklow, 3,000 3, for Dublin, 3,000 for Belfast, uh, Kinsale, 400, that sort of number. And even in small places like, for example, uh, Clear Island, perhaps 25, which isn't bad. The personal and foreign voyages being on there means that if, if you've got foreign voyages, you, you know where they're going. You can pick out where they are on the Mauritania, for example. A lot of the Clarehead men, for example, used to go for Cunard liners. I think it's because they had better food. Uh, this, the CR10 cars, the one advantage they have is that for this period only, they include home trade seamen. The first time they've ever been included on a record system. After 1921, the people who are on home trade, people on working across the IRC, disappear from the records until 1939, when they need the records again. The standard of the photographs. I mean, some of the photographs are, in my view, are wonderful. Uh, and why should they be lying in Southampton when they should, could be seen? And if you produce the photographs in a community, it's amazing what reaction you get. And you get feedback, which is what I'm after. Um, weaknesses, the cards are handwritten. And it's amazing what you can get, what the handwriting can change. Um, so transcription and legibility are a problem. Some men couldn't read or write, so it's done by a scribe for them. Um, and what, what do you say if he's describing what his name is, and they ask, how do you spell it? Uh, very few women included, but... Si 60 isn't, I think 60 we might get more. Unfortunately, when I searched again, I searched it by four names, and it's Jean is impossible because you get all the French men. Uh, Florence is difficult. I didn't realize until I came to look at it that Florence is very popular down it as, as a man's name down in Cor the Cork area. Um, the dates of birth are not reliable. 16-year-old boys put themselves forward as 18 for adult pay rates. And the one example, I have, is one Irish woman here, Kathleen Hunt, from Cormac, County Wexford. Uh, I found, looked her records in three different places, and I got three different dates of birth, 1899, 1889, and 1879, over a 10-year period. Uh, so I, I don't know why she didn't give a picture. Very few, so no voyages, recorded for home trade seamen, so you've got to look other places to find out what they were doing. Luckily, there is a tremendous amount of uh, records uh, available, so, um, but you have to go and dig for them. And I'll start now, is Julia, Julia here? And John Mack. This is my last slide. I was listening to them yesterday, and that's right, there's Julia back. Now, I was listening to you, and I got, I got Cassadown Bear, I got Bantry, uh, and what else did I get? Uh, oh, I, I got ships' names. Now, between Castletown Bear and Bantry at this time, there was a, a, a steamer service operating. One of the ships was called the Princess Beera, female name, and the other one was called 
the, what was it called? Oh yes, the Lady Elsie. How do I know this? Next slide show you. There you are. Daniel McCarthy from Bantry, County Cork. Lady Elsie on his jersey. There's about 12 photographs of men either from Lady Elsie, who are all from Bantry, or if they're from uh, Castletown Bear, they're all on the Prince's Bureau. So there you are. There's, I had to get whip. There's that one. All I've got there. Who was Lady Elsie? Thanks very much. Thank you very much, David. And I think that if anybody has an ancestor that ever went to sea in that period, you know who to go to now. And it's actually quite heartening uh, that so much stuff now, particularly because of World War I, is going online. You know, crew lists, which are an absolute nightmare to go through, uh, particularly uh, anybody looking for crew lists, you'll have to, 80% of them are over in Newfoundland in St. John's, and that's where they are. Now, there's a way of getting them without having to go to Newfoundland, but it's a hard, hard job. But bit by bit by bit, we will in this museum, when I get a bit of time, we will do a little, some genealogy sessions, particularly maritime genealogy sessions, and hopefully people will start to find out more, and I certainly will be roping in David from time to time. Now, our next speaker is very well known to all of us, and it's Karen Dobsky, and Karen is a marine ecologist. She's a co-founder and a coordinator of the environmental NGO Coastwatch Europe, and we know her well from the media. She co-designed the very well-known Blue Flag for Beaches Award program, and she was involved in the Irish Clean Air Group, which successfully lobbied for the introduction of smokeless fuel in Ireland, and it did a very good job indeed. But she's presently on the Civil and Environmental Engineering Research Staff in Trinity College Dublin, and still very much involved in Coastwatch surveys, which were very influential in introducing the plastic bag tax. Quite amazing what comes out of some of these environmental NGOs with a bit of effort. She's currently participating in, this is an intriguingly named EU-funded project called the Sea Colour and Transparency Citizen Science Project. Now, she's going to have to explain that, because I can't. So, the title of her presentation is Coastwatch, a Citizen Science Initiative for the Sea and Us. And I will hand over now to Karen. Would you give her a warm welcome, please? I'm delighted to be here today. I also I, I prepared a PowerPoint, which if you are doing um, light up afterwards, but I'm just going to, because I'm quite close to your coffee break, do things by hand and foot. Um, Coastwatch Survey started in 1987, and it was one of these days where you're looking back. We had just um, done something interesting. We had shown that the solution to pollution is not dilution. Because before that, the authorities said that the sewage from Dublin Bay was perfectly okay. It all headed out towards Wales as soon as it left. And then a few of us, male and female, went and dipped um, lollipop sticks, or those which you, in fact, one of us was a doctor, wooden sticks into paint and then into our bath at home so that it mimics sewage. Because sewage swims, of course, but it doesn't swim at the very top. And then we threw the 5,000 into the sea along with some rhodamine B dye where the sewage comes out and rings end. 
And we had a sea captain with us, who at the time wasn't one, but he was studying for it. He was doing the hydrology. A few other locals had joined in as well to discuss. And we had the timing right, so that within three and a half hours, these 5,000 sticks were over on Daliman Beach, where the local authority was trying to pick them up quicker than us, because this was the evidence. And buoyed up by this sudden citizen science is simple, effective, visual. It has to prove something which then turns the political minds. Because as one politician once said to me, I would like to do some things, Karin, but you have to make it politically possible for me. So that's Citizen science, the word, entered the Oxford Dictionary last year. But many of us were doing it for years and years beforehand. Birdwatch was way ahead of us with the bird counts. We were just being a little bit more political, but non-party political in Coastwatch. Our idea, our vision, that day when we pontificated, Frank MacDonald was sitting outside the steps of our house, um, in Monkstown, which we had, which was in a very run-down state, and we were doing it up ourselves, and we sat and said, wouldn't it be lovely for European Year of the Environment to do something which really engaged everyone? He then spoke to his editor. We were allowed to print questions which we drew up that afternoon of a basic eco-audit of the shore, and we were given two pages with those questions, and people who bought the Irish Times in Ireland, North and South, were invited to fill out the questions by going down onto a shore and then post them back. And our estimate was that we would have approximately a hundred answers. So we made up this little sketch map and we thought a hundred points that looks quite good in the report. And unfortunately for us, because it was pre-computer, we had over 600 answers, and my idea of laying them out in rows in the sitting room didn't quite work, and an early computer company very kindly came in overnight, phoned and said, we can input it for you. So it was a slightly ropey affair, but we did get results. The results were printed in the Irish Times, and in Brussels, one of the Irish... Um, in, the in the DG environment, or DG 11 as it was then, uh, read about it, told his boss, who was fascinated by it, called me in and said, I was working with Blue Flag at the time and would be going in and out of Brussels every so often, would you like to do this internationally? So from 87 to 88, we were discussing how could you do it much more systematically? Can you come up with something which is fair to all coasts? You don't want people to just beaches. You don't want to compare two kilometers with 100 meters. So we came up with a system where you divide the coast into equal 500 uh, meter survey units. And these ones would be grouped in blocks of 10 survey units, and they would be in a county and there would be a counting system. It's a very simple system, just had to be designed. And that made the International Coast Watch Survey suddenly pop up in 1989. By 
1990, it was beginning to really bite because umpteen people used it in maths class, in geography class. Secondary school teachers, I had also worked for four years getting environmental education into secondary school, so I had some contacts, loved the idea of this. And quite quickly, it grew. And we started showing internationally. Now, our main thing was everybody was working free of charge, but we were getting money for transport on for materials, but not enough materials. So, for example, on one occasion, I tried to quickly make results, but we didn't have any boards. So we used one of the children's... I did not. The letter side were quite interesting. So, for example, 22% of all of these 500 meter units, and at that stage we had over 5,000, had household waste dumped. Why was that? Our society was changing. More, more waste, packaging waste was coming in. 1990s was like you go to a supermarket and you got five bags to package your stuff. It was a real throwaway society. Fishing nets, 27% of survey units. 40% of the sites had beer can holders. At the time, beer can holders was the in thing and everybody was drinking beer with beer can holders. So we decided two things. One, this survey needs to grow even further, but two, we need to start action. There's no point of just surveying, we need action. So different people started looking at where with minimal clout, with minimal finance, could you theoretically make a change? The six-pack holders was one. There were only two producers in Europe. Both were producing six-pack holders with plastic, People were finding birds with their legs caught up in it. One or two uh, other animals, which we'd had photos of. And we asked Heikon and the other company, whose name escapes me, would they please get out of plastic six-pack holders? And that we would start really lobbying. And we lobbied in the European Parliament. And Heikon, within 11 months, agreed to change from the durable plastic to a thin plastic which was UV photodegradable and would crack so that if animals did get uh, caught, they could release themselves quite quickly. The other uh, producer went into cardboard, which is what we actually favored. So we suddenly thought, wow, there really is people's power. You can do things quite quickly. So we thought, right. As more results, we were now getting over 10,000 survey results in 23 European countries in our autumn surveys from the Black Sea to Ireland. This was the largest survey in, the, in 1993, 94, 95 uh, in Europe of any kind. Uh, we can really change everything. But then, and that always happens no matter what you do, you have the counter current, more agencies notice you and start pushing down on you. Government saying, no, 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 you're not going to change that much. You're going to affect our industry. So it became slightly harder. But Ireland led in this case. The plastic bag count in Ireland rapidly rose. And a few people in politics thought that our proposal for a tax could be 
doable. And over two and a half years, we argued backwards and forwards. Some research was done, and the count data from the general public, from the Irish public, was used in the Dáil to persuade the Dáil to adopt the plastic bag tax. Uh, that was the first in Europe. Now, since this year, it is a European law, and all countries, all EU countries, are having it. So, um, there is an incredible, I think often untapped, power for the good in citizen science. There are other sides too. And that is that you get caught up in something. Oh, the little bit works, so go on and on and on. Like with polystyrene, for example, we have had no, no success at all. Polystyrene in a marine environment is the nastiest thing you can think of. It breaks into pieces. Sorry about your floor. But these little bees are eaten by quite a number of birds. The birds feel full. Their stomachs are extended, but they are starving. They also act like little poison pills because they roll around in the marine environment, picking up any oil, any hydrocarbon. So quite often when you see the old polystyrene, it's black, it's dirty. That too gets ingested. So we want a substitution of this material. It's no point cleaning it up on the shore. We need, we need substitution. However, the polystyrene industry has a program of increasing its use. Last year in Cork Harbour, we found a platoon made of polystyrene with an outer casing, like a Christmas cake, of concrete. Now, who has ever thought of a platoon made of polystyrene? Because it has to create problems the minute it breaks. So we have to think backwards, away from the shore. In some cases, cleanups, as they're now happening in Ireland, are fantastic. But you cannot rely on cleanups on, on their own. You have to think back. Now coming to biodiversity. I did an interesting thing with some students, two minutes, um, asking in a boys' school, 11-year-olds, to identify cars, which I quickly whipped up on the PowerPoint. And an average 11-year-old can identify 11 cars, which is pretty fantastic. Now, the same 11-year-old, how many seashells do you think of our island? How many shells would they identify from their local beach? Say they're Dubliners. Two, two seashells. And they'd say cockles and mussels, and they wouldn't even know which one is which. That is a massive weakness which we have, and which we have to address with citizen science. We have to know our shells. There are presently 52 shells I could identify like that in Dublin Bay. It is so rich. There are so many different habitats in it. And it is the women who had the cockles and mussels, and maybe it is the women who can show their little ones these shells to listen to them. That's a common whelk. That's not that common anymore. Look at the amazing eggs it makes. Aren't they much, much better than that? But they have the same function. Lightness, expandable, long-lasting. We should be able to make 
We rather product instead of polystyrene, which is as clever as what a common whelk can make. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Karen. It was very thought-provoking. One of the weaknesses I think you probably identified there, and it's not for the want of saying it out loud by agencies like the Marine Institute or Mordisky Warner, where I worked, and others, is that the Marine is not on the syllabus anywhere. Absolutely nowhere is anything about it. And it's not for the want of asking. You try to get educators interested in something to do with the Marine, and they say, if it's not on the syllabus, the kids don't have time to study it. I'm sorry, fantastic stuff, but... And I know in BIM we spent a fair bit of time developing work on interesting projects for school kids, for geography, which would be the natural sort of place maybe to work it into. Biology, it's easy enough. You, you, can, you can fit it in there all right. But we were told, sorry, syllabus doesn't allow it, teaching time doesn't allow it, and that's the big weakness. And there's a couple of points you made there, for example, about plastic. Now, anyone that ever worked on a fishing boat between here and Hollyhead could tell you at the amount of plastic cups that used to litter the seabed. I am not joking you. It was unreal. You might have a bag of fish which, say, was about this high, and a third of it would be plastic cups. And it just wasn't confined to the direct route of the ship because when you get further south of the Kish, the tide is very strong, and you'll find it everywhere. It was a disgrace, and it shouldn't have continued. And there's a gentleman who certainly Karen will know, Gabriel King. I'm sure you know Gabriel. I've known him for many years. We, I always call him Gabriel Turtle King. And he has been in here. He was in last week, but I missed him. And Gabriel would be a world expert on turtles. And he's even mapped turtles, believe it or not, up the Irish Sea. But plastic bags are the most dangerous things. They look like jellyfish, and they are just discarded. And the fishing industry has to clean its act up. I think they're getting a bit better at it, probably because Karen's annoying them a lot. But that needs to be done too. They need to be annoyed. People do need to be annoyed before they wake up and see that things have to change. So thank you very much for that. I would like to thank all my speakers uh, for keeping to time. And I would like them to all come up here now, because there's going to be a question and answer session. Um, I was just uh, wondering from Sinead, this question for Sinead and Erica. Um, how long, uh, what would an average um, length of voyage be? And um, like, how long would you be at sea for? And then, you know, how many of those voyages would you have to do a year? So how, how, how long would you be able to spend at home, on shore? And, uh, and also, um, Sinead, like if your husband is off traveling as well how often do you see him you know uh, well my first trip to sea was five months in a week and I did not get off that ship once um, after that once I was qualified the average uh, length of a trip was four months and you'd get two months at home so four months on two months off and yes when my tr husband traveled as well uh, we had good years and bad years uh, the worst year we had was we saw each other for four weeks um, out of the 12 months but thankfully, we're both ashore now. So, uh, but I don't get to see him anymore. 
Yeah, we, we have a slightly different, I suppose, um, rotation in the Navy. Typically, you'll do two years on a ship and two years ashore. So for the two years on a ship, um, the patrols, as we call them, are four weeks in duration with typically two weeks back in base where you're conducting self-maintenance, administration and resupplying to go back out to sea again. So it's generally you spend two years and, and as I said, four weeks at a time. Um, again, like that, my husband's also in the Navy and um, he's at, currently at sea at the moment. Um, so it's, I suppose, it's not written down, but there is a policy there that if there are um, people with partners in the Navy, then generally we try to facilitate that they're not both on ships at the same time, so that for family purposes, if we have an 18-month-old, so it wouldn't really be practical. So um, that's, that's how it stands in the, the Irish Navy. How are you? For, the, for uh, Sinead and Erica, um, I found your description of harassment, Sinead, extremely disturbing. I was wondering, was there any recourse for you, anyone to, to go to, to put a stop to that? And to Erica, is there any similar type of harassment of women going on on the ships, and is there any recourse if there is? Uh, well, for me, I was one of the first heading out to sea. There was no recourse. In your medical, if you had gone to see um, a consultant for any purpose, you had to say so. And if that meant going to see a psychologist to help assist you with any mental issues, you probably wouldn't get another contract. But things have since improved. Without a doubt, things have improved. There are now uh, grievance procedures, and you can follow those grievance procedures. It's not just for, for women. Uh, in, certainly on the cruise ships, there's a problem for men where they are being accused of rape when they haven't been. So procedures have to be followed now. They've come in place in the last 10 years. Yeah, in the, well, in the Defence Forces, but in the Navy, um, we have very strict disciplinary procedures. And again, we also have very strict um, redress um, procedures. And we have, we have very good um, support services and that. So if somebody does feel that they are being harassed, again, it's, a, it's very much a personal perspective, I suppose. Um, then they, there are people that they can go to, people they can talk to. Um, we have no, there's no overt cases that I can think of offhand. Um, but obviously, women only joined the Navy in 1995. It would have been very new back then. But uh, at that stage, there was a very solid um, complaints procedure and complaints system in place already in the Defence Forces. So that, you know, it followed suit where women were concerned as well if they did have grievances that they had um, redress and, and recourse. So um, I hope that answers the question. Um, can I just ask, um, in terms of like maternity leave and like planning your families, would you have to plan to have your baby for the two years you're at home? <laughs> um, not specifically, no. Um, basically, I mean, family planning is it's like, it's like everything else. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a human right. So it's it's um, in the end of the day, um, it, it's down to the individual. Um, we have women who joined from school, which would be in my case, um, and I chose to, to um, go to sea and, and do my rotations two years at a time, be it as gunnery officer, navigation officer, captain, and at that stage it suited me to have my family, but there are other women in the Navy who have gone and maybe have one stint at sea, and then at that stage, you know, they may have come in later into the Navy and decided they wanted to have their children, and um, we have women in the Navy then who, who are, you know, maybe came in with, with, with their children, um, or with having had children before they join the Navy, and they go to sea. So it's just a matter of, I suppose, it, it, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. We have a maternity policy. Um, the Naval Service, actually, um, we were came up with our own maternity policy, which was then adopted by the Defence Forces as a whole, because the Army also have women overseas who would be serving in, in similar situations where they'd be away for six months or a year at a time. 
So um, it's, it's very much on a case-by-case basis, but we do um, f- facilitate women. And as it stands, if you do have a baby while you're in the Navy, um, then at the moment, in, in line with, um, with legislation and domestic legislation, you get two years ashore. So that, that's, that's very generous, and it's very generous when we compare it against other um, navies, in particular the U- United States. They've only just extended their maternity leave from, I think, six weeks to, um, I think they've doubled it or maybe trebled it to about 15 weeks. That's very small, you know. Um, if you compare it against our own domestic legislation here, where it's 26 weeks as maternity leave, you know. So um, there, we do facilitate it, but it's, it depends on the individual. Um, in the Merchant Navy, it's a career stopper. Um, I got off the ship and I knew that was it. I was walking off and wasn't going back. And at a parent-toddler group, someone said to me, so when are you going back to work? And I said, I can't. And that was it. Um, but again, I'm one of the first that went to sea, one of the first coming ashore, and now we're, we're equal now in the maritime sphere, so we can now have shore jobs. I had my children, and I went back to work. Can you elaborate on why it is a complete career stopper? Uh, well, to go away for four or five months at a time when you have a child, and my husband was at sea as well, so we'd have nobody to mind the children. This is for Karen and just with the marine education, is that part, when you say you go to schools, is that part of a Trinity program or is that Coast Watch or do you do something else with different funding when you're visiting schools and is it primary or secondary or who are you visiting? I go to all sizes of schools or colleges. Um, it's generally without funding and it's just because I see that it is the core thing to do if we want to make a change. And the geography curriculum has changed. So it is a possibility. The Coast Watch survey, by the way, is running at the moment, if anybody wants to do it. And the geography, quite a number of geography teachers have now started taking it on because it does have this option for, uh, for field work. Um, I also um, have a question for Karen as well, which is kind of connected to the last one, which is, do you know how Ireland compares to other countries, say, in Europe, in terms of its primary education in marine studies, or have you any idea if we're particularly bad compared to other countries? I don't have any proper research on it, but I've just come back from our International Coast Watch meeting in Lisbon, and there's something which really shocked me because um, one of the EPA top people who I was talking to said, why is it that Irish children know so little about the sea? And I said, huh? And he was saying, well, we have had ongoing exchanges, and there's one thing which we have noticed, how much less they know about the sea. And uh, that's the only thing which made me hark up and think, this is worth doing some solid research and then coming with the evidence to change it. Unless anyone else has questions to follow Karen through on that, just while the theme... I have a question um, for you, Erica. Um, could you um, talk about the relationship between the Defence Forces and the Navy, how that works? Well, we're, we're joint, I suppose, is the words that you'd use. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware at the moment. Um, we've just got a new Chief of Staff who is um, Admiral Mellis. And heretofore, it would have been an army officer would have been in charge of the whole defence forces. So, I mean, the army would have been always the senior service. So the umbrella would have been, um, I suppose, the army at the top tier. And then you would have had the, the Navy and the Air Corps who would have been, I suppose, um, cores as such of, of the, the defence forces as a whole. 
Um, it's it's a whole new era now with with Admiral Mellet at the top of of the of the the pillar. So it, it's to be seen as to how that goes. But I mean, the relationship is very much. You know, we are the primary seagoing agency of the state. The Air Corps, again, they, they, they do their thing in terms of our air defense and the Army um, peace support operations is, is their main main role, um, as well as on-island security. Um, and we used to be, uh, we used to have um, our headquarters in Dublin, but now it's in Cork. Um, we have our, our Navy officers who work up in, in headquarters, so we have staff who work in a joint basis in, in operations and in our planning and policy up in the Defence Forces. So everything we do, it, 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 it's all intertwined. It's, we, we, I can't say we're separate from the Army or we're, we're separate from anybody else. And again, the Air Corps, we work with them very much in terms of maritime surveillance, um, fisheries and um, drug interdiction and, and trafficking. They, we're all, we all, there's a, a cooperation there as such. But um, in terms of the, the general staff, heretofore it would have been Army, but now we have, uh, have an Admiral at the top of the, the tier. Specifically on the, the rescue missions at the moment in the Mediterranean, how does that work between the Defence Forces and the, the Navy? The Navy? Um, again, like that, I suppose all the decisions for us to, to, be, um, to be sent to the Mediterranean in the first instance would have been from the, the, the general staff um, speaking with, with, with government and with the minister. Um, so all of the, the high-level talks would have, would have been, um, at a, I suppose, between the Army and the um, Department of Defence initially. Um, and then obviously that filters down to our, to, to our flag, flag officer. Um, in terms of the cooperation while we're out there, we actually have army medics on board the ships at the moment um, who wouldn't generally go to sea, but it's just part, part of the jointness and the fact that we needed more medics on board. Um, we were in a position to be able to, to take army medics with us. So I said everything is kind of on a jointness that would be the, the, the word I'd use um, and cooperation. Um, this is for Erica again. <laughs> Um, I was uh, just wondering about, you know, the the fisheries side of things. Um, Have you noticed, you know, the, you know, how many boats would you kind of board a year? Or is the illegal fishing kind of increasing or is it on the decrease or how do you feel it's going? Um, I wouldn't have the specific statistics on that, but... Um, it's always there. I mean, illegal fishing is always there. It's, it's kind of, I suppose, it's no more than the, um, the Gardaí on shore. I mean, we're constabulary navy, so we go out and we board and we're looking for, you know, infringements. Um, you know, obviously, traditionally, we, we'd have always had issues um, with illegal fisheries. Um, we don't discriminate you know, if it's Irish, French, Spanish, we, we, we board them. Uh, we do, I suppose, what we have now that's different to previous is we have data and more, there's more of an analysis done in terms of um, vessels who would be continually infringing. Um, we may focus a bit more on them. Um, we have a big presence now down off on the south and southwest of, of, of Ireland, you know, maybe 150 to 200 miles um, into our EEZ, um, which we have kind of identified as a gateway um, for trawlers who would be returning um, down to, to Spain or to France. And from there, we found that we can, um, we can conduct our most effective operations and that we can um, be in a certain area. Because obviously, we, realistically, we have, we have a large coastline, we have a massive area, even you saw that the, the, the different maps that were shown there, um, the expanse of waters that we cover is massive and, and we only have the eight ships so we have to try and do this as effectively as we can. So we do, as I said, position um, our ships strategically. And in terms of whether there's more or less, 
it's hard to know because, as I said, I think we just have more information nowadays on, um, on what people ha should have on board, what they do have on board, and once we get on board, we can really um, get a good picture of whether or not they're, they're, they're illegally catching. We still come across what we call miracle catches, where all of a sudden you get on board a trawler and they've caught, you know, 10,000 tonne of, of, of hake or, or monk in, in the previous 24 hours, and you're hard to disprove that they've done it, but you know that's absolutely physically impossible, but at least... The big thing for us, at least it's now recorded, you know. Question for David. Just in terms of the, the research, David, and going to um, communities with your information, are you tapping into the county-based local archaeological and historical societies, or how do you reach different counties? I usually approach people um, or counties and see what reaction I get. Um, uh, and usually... If I go to, say, a larger town like, say, Dundalk or Drada or Newry, I'd be looking for some, some sort of payment. Um, on smaller places, I've usually done it because I want to do it. Um, that's how it works. Uh, but I've mostly done it Dublin and above. Um, there's an exhibition here for the RMS Leinster um, out the back there. Uh, the the these um, identity cars started coming in September 1918, so all the men on the Leinster, most of the men on the Leinster signed up for it, and 40 of them were dead the following month. And you can see the reaction of that on, the, there's a, the exhibition at the back there, if you want to have a look. So it's really, I tried to do one, this year I've done, um, what have I been? Balbriggan, I've done Balbriggan in Scaris at Balbriggan Library. Um, last year I did Rings End, um, which was interesting. Uh, I did that at the central, uh, the, the um, city library in Pier Street, and it's quite close to Ring's End. So you get it, it's nice to get a reaction. That's what you want the reaction to say, um, you know, you got that wrong, or uh, do you want do you know about this, or here's this document. That, that's that's the great thing about it. I mean, with those women on the wall there, um, or you literally a snapshot. But the thing is always is what happened next. What happened before? And there's one woman up there, Valent. I can't remember her four names. Valent, uh, and I put her on the put her on the on the online. See what I, see what reaction I got. And her her husband was at sea the year before. He, he was the master of a merchantman. It was sunk, so he was killed. Um, so it looks. I don't know how many kids she had, but I think she had to go to sign on as a stewardess to support herself, because you know there's. There's very little backup at that time. Um, the backup really is the workhouse. Uh, that's, 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 what, you know, that's what you're looking at. And when you look forward, you look at the 1920s and the 1930s with recession here, and how do they survive? Uh, what happened next? Um, what I found in Clarehead, for example, was a lot of them, the seamen, uh, they were fishermen, they signed on for the RNR uh, for the money, six pounds a year retainer. Uh, so you get good medical reports on them, but uh, it's astonishing how many died from TB. Uh, I don't know, 5%, 10% of the men you see in the R&R died of TB. So it, you, don't know what, you don't know what you're going to strike, and you're really looking for talking to, one, to a couple of communities at a time for the, for the next project. Does that, that make sense? I hope. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to call a halt to the proceedings now. I would like you to give a big round of appreciation for our four presenters. Thank you.